Since the coronavirus outbreak, it seems that fast food restaurants have been able to weather the storm. Is there a silver lining for the other restaurants who were forced to close down? According to New York Times, large chains are well-funded and restaurant groups have the resources for the shutdown. Independent restaurants, however, make up two-thirds of American dining. That's going to be your noodle shops, vegan spots, diners that have always been busy may not survive post-coronavirus. Restaurant analysts quote that 75% of independent restaurants won't make it. The National Restaurant Association says that this week the entire industry will lose $225 billion. In the coming three months, restaurants are looking to lose 5 to 7 million employees. I am one of them. Though many restaurants may be grabbing at what's left of government funding, it's simply not enough. Nor is it the solution. Takeout was only a band-aid for most restaurants, and it wasn't worth it for most. It didn't align with many of their restaurant models, and it wasn't worth it to put so many employees at risk. And the fine dining restaurants have been completely turned upside down. Many are saying that restaurants are on the verge of extinction. But while chefs are getting together, planning for when the industry starts to come up again, many say it's time to let go of outdated practices and develop new and more creative ways to feed people. Though the coronavirus isn't something that anybody could have ever planned, it was a force to revisit the business side, not just the creative side. But what will restaurants look like post-pandemic? Hi, welcome to Precious the Foodie podcast, the show that will uncover stories through palettes and memories. My name is Precious Pioneer, your host. I'm a chef, a creative, and a foodie. I'm meeting people all over the world using food as a medium to highlight truths into bite-sized pieces. Hi everybody, it's Precious Pioneer and welcome to another episode of Precious the Foodie. Here today I have a very special guest, Louis Oria. She's going to introduce himself and tell a little bit about what he does. Hey Precious, thanks for having me. I'm Louis Oriash. I live in London and I'm a designer by trade working at a travel tech startup. I love design, food, writing, blogging, podcasting, all sort of creative exploits. I've got a ton of side projects from uh, design publications to other podcasts and those sort of things. I grew up in rural England to a Moroccan chef father and a British mother. And as you can imagine, the sort of culinary experience that I had growing up was mixed and full of vibrance. I'm not a trained cook, but I've pretty much learned how to cook and my interest in food was developed from watching a ton of TV cookery shows on my university school holidays rather than actually learning how to study. As I mentioned, I live in London. Um, so obviously London has an amazing food scene and I lived in Sydney for a little bit, which has an incredible food scene, particularly with an Asian influence, which sort of led my, my interest in food down the Indian Middle Eastern track and that's where I get my influence from my father and the amazing Indian food scene in London uh, but most importantly I love chilies they need to be in every single food. 
I totally agree with you there. I actually have a Mexican background. My mom is Mexican, so I definitely understand the need for spicy food and things like that. What kind of food did you grow up eating with such a diverse, interesting background and then moving around? Like what kind of signature dishes did your uh, family cook at home? You would think that I was eating exciting food from birth, but that's unfortunately not the case. I think that I was quite a picky child and I was probably eating uh, spaghetti bolognese every day until the age of about 12 because that's what I love to, <laughs> I love to eat but that, you know, that's what children are like. It wasn't until I was sort of 14, 15 where my palate developed and I was more interested in exploring that sort of thing so my dad does fantastic barbecues and that's come from his Moroccan upbringing but also the fact that he used to work with a lot of Turkish people and, and work in Turkish restaurants. So he's learned to make the, the best marinades and cook the best kebabs on, on the barbecue. So from the age of 15, it was sort of Middle Eastern Turkish food. And when we'd, we'd have a lot of barbecues during the summer. And the best part was not the food that we ate on the barbecue, uh, but afterwards, my dad would prepare a Moroccan tagine and put it on the barbecue and leave it to cook overnight, which as you can imagine, was mm. absolutely amazing. So the next day we had more food. I didn't realize that you had traveled so much. I actually, um, well, I, as everyone knows here, I'm from America yeah. and I actually live currently in DC and I've actually grew up with a military background. And so I've actually lived all over the place. And I definitely understand how regionally, how you can be influenced by all kinds of food. Mm -hmm. You said in Sydney that you were surrounded by Asian food and things like that. Did that help develop your palate more? Or did you learn anything from that experience? Do you have a favorite food in that region or yeah. do you not care for it as much <laughs> uh, no definitely i when i lived in sydney i lived in the city center and there's a, a huge chinatown area and i was influenced so much by that it before a few years my before i moved out a few years my uh, new year's resolution was i ought to learn how to cook chinese food and never did it and then i moved to, <laughs> I moved to sydney and had the best chinese asian vietnamese thai food that I didn't even need to learn because it was on my doorstep. But what it what it really introduced me to, thanks to um, a colleague, was Sichuan food in uh, a region in China, and mainly because of the spice. The Sichuan pepper is so tasty, and it sort of numbs your numbs your mouth when you're eating it, and it becomes sort of this addictive addictive food that you want to try over and over again. And that's sort of what I took mainly from that experience. Was you might think you know a region's food but you have no idea there's so many different levels i kind of relate in a sense when i used to live in orlando um a japanese scene was blooming instead of a chinatown we have like a vietnamese town like a little vietnamese area where just two blocks down would just be all these vietnamese restaurants but then um over the past year they've been really growing japanese food and they opened asian markets all around and things like that and they opened a lot of ramen shops now, you know, growing up, like I ate a whole bunch of like packaged ramen and I really love that, but that doesn't obviously hold a tea to an actual Japanese ramen shop. And so me studying culinary, I was just like, you know what, I have to learn how to make this myself. And so I like spent hours in Asian markets for the past like few weekends over the course of months. And then I bought a pasta roller and I literally dedicated myself to the science of like making ramen noodles. And so I think that it's kind of, it's really interesting because I thought I hit a whole nother ballpark of like, wow, I learned how to do this one thing. But really, it's just kind of like the tip of an iceberg when you're first discovering something new, especially culturally. 
So I think that's really cool yeah. that you got to experience it's, that. It's great that you mentioned the Vietnamese. I, w I maintain to everybody who I speak to that the Vietnamese banh mi is the best sandwich in the world. And somebody, somebody said to me the other day that, yeah, it's just because they fill it with everything. And I said, well, exactly. The more fillings, the better, surely. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Though, to be honest, I haven't had a lot of Vietnamese food to really be able to talk about it. I think is I think pho is considered Vietnamese, no? Yeah. I think pho and then banh mi, like the sandwich. Like, I think that's the only two items I've ever had, which is very standard and it hardly counts. You know what I mean? So... I, I think I have to branch out a little bit more. So tell me, how has the restaurant industry and everything like that been affected with Corona? Do you think that all around the world it's kind of similar? Because I know that in the US right now, currently almost all restaurants are closed, plus every other public meeting place besides grocery stores and things that are considered non-essential. There are a few like fast food places open because you can kind of drive by and pick them up very quickly. And then even grocery stores, they have an online like pickup place now where you can order your uh, groceries online and then they give you a day as a specific day. Ours is th happens to be Thursday, but you can go in and then pick it up and then that's it, you know, or they have like a designated line that you can go in. So how has the UK and like London been affected by the coronavirus? There's been, in my view, two perspectives that you can take from this. Normal trade has been absolutely awful. As, as you mentioned, every restaurant is practically closed and that is just so detrimental to livelihoods and to businesses across the whole world. And it, I just can't even imagine how, how you get back from this, this slump. The secondary aspect, I guess, is that delivery business is not finished, which means that although restaurants are in a pretty, pretty dire state, they still still can at least try and keep their head above water through slow some slow trade. And as you can imagine from being closed, the side effects are you've got less staff and they have wages that need to be paid and they've got families they need to support and all these really bad negative impacts that are very real, but there's little little support for those, for those people. And the, the financial trouble that is landing businesses and people individually is just catastrophic. I've got a neighbor who was due to launch his own restaurant in London in the next few months. And as you can imagine, that's not gonna happen. And they've got all these people that have been set up to start employment at this point and have been re relying on this starting for their, for their mortgages and to support their family. And it's just not gonna happen. So all the salaries that are being lost is just, is just awful. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I, I can't even say I can't imagine because I feel like I have been through that in some shape of the word and i almost think it's a, a good thing as bad as that sounds that your friend didn't at least start because you know the first restaurants are almost doomed to fail because of how much um debt they go in and things like that that's why that percentage is out there i think you know over half of restaurants fail within their first year so to be able to start on such a wrong foot i think is not so good so i think the fact that you know he didn't have to employ staff and then immediately shut down i think that's almost a good thing so he can start really fresh when things eventually get better but on my end, being a chef, I definitely went through that sort of awkward, hey, everybody's fired. 
uh, see you in the next like month or so. Um, And so it was just like an interesting perspective because I did just graduate from hospitality. And so knowing that it was like an undying field, like everybody always has to eat, everybody needs hotels, you know, things like that. To see it completely ripped into shreds was just a very interesting to thought to like wrap my mind around. And luckily, I, I was very blessed to actually work at a higher class restaurant where they actually had a wine subscription. And so their only income didn't solely rely on guests coming into the restaurant. And so we were able to sustain ourselves for at least another two, three weeks where, you know, staff could get paid. And like, even though nobody walked in the restaurant, just because people needed to pick up their wine that they had ordered for their monthly subscription. But it was just a very interesting transition to kind of I guess get laid off, but I've never been in a situation where they're like, okay, sorry, we we need you, but we don't need you. And like, they would call us to come in for just one day a week because they need to rotate everybody. But I think I've been very blessed in the sense that I was able to be employed a little bit longer. And not only that, they understood that they just laid off a bunch of families and a lot of employees. And so they were able to give us like a, a check to kind of hold us over for like another two weeks, which I think is a little bit more than what other companies were able to do for such larger staff. Yeah, I think what you've touched on there there is really important in that there's business is business, right? But these people have affected are humans and you need to look out for your employees because they're gonna be your representatives in the market. And if you were treated poorly by your employer, you're not gonna tell anybody to go and work for that employer should they get back up on their feet. And it sounds like your experience is that they really wanted to look after you. And I had a similar experience in my in my job at the moment. We no one was made redundant, luckily, because everybody accepted to take a temporary pay cut. And that's because we were all looking out for each other. And unless you treat your colleagues and your um, peers as as family, then no one's going to get through this successfully. Right. I think I think that's very important to like. I don't know, it, it set a whole nother bar for the company that I was working for. Like I would have never thought that, you know, and it's really it's really cool because they also reached out and they offered free meals for me, like the employees, and then also our families for the next two weeks. And I'm like, wow, that's like really, they're going above and beyond what they can do to make sure that we're okay, even though, you know, it's not the most ideal of times. But I think everybody's very understanding that you know, it is business, but at the same time, it does feel nice to be taken care of during this time. We don't know when it's going to end. It kind of, they add another couple of weeks as time goes on. And so it's it's hard to gauge. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. How do you think we could co- ever come back from something like this? I know the trade market and the economy is like incredibly down and all these other things. Is there anything that we could do just in general that would help sustain the future or do you think like consumers have a bigger role or do you think it's more in the role of the employers and the ceos and companies there's a lot that needs to happen i think uh from my perspective at least the restaurant trade this isn't this isn't a new thing that the restaurants that restaurants are struggling restaurants have been struggling since the financial crash in 2008 and that was 12 years ago so if that's any indication of what that is an overdue refresh in how we think about the catering industry this has to be it in in 2009 after a year after the crash the uk was losing 52 pubs per week and that's one year after that financial crash yeah and it's essentially been a struggle since that moment and i think that this is not necessarily long overdue but we're being 
push through that funnel really, really quickly at the moment. In 2019, you probably remember Jamie Oliver having to shut down a ton of his restaurants because they just weren't turning, weren't oh, turning right. a profit anymore. And that was before the virus and also with a massive celebrity. So if, if he's struggling, then how the hell is a mom and pop restaurant going to be surviving it right now? And that's where I think that thing, the, the mindset and the how restaurants business models, need, there needs to be a shift in how people, how people change. What you mentioned before about the subscription service is actually quite an interesting idea because the more you get restaurants and caterers diversifying their offering, the more bases they can cover for potential profit and to give themselves a bit of structure and proof should something go wrong. I saw, I saw today that concierge services in the UK are actually booming right now and having the best months they've had in years because although people aren't going out and going to events and gigs and music concerts and that sort of thing, they're relying on concierge services and home deliveries to get their groceries and to encourage them to do charity donations and to get their wine delivered to their house. You know, all these sorts of things that are involved in the industry, but not directly related to catering or food. And that's where the model is going to be shifting and be forced to shift going forward. It's essentially holding a mirror up to how fragile everything is right now. And in my own opinion, I think that the way that businesses are forced to run and the way that restaurants operate just can't live together. The way the governments need to sort of step in and offer an alternative method of running a restaurant business because as you will know, being in it, margins are so low that restaurants in general live month to month and that is just not sustainable. If something, if there's a blip in the market or something drastic like what's happening now happens, how the hell are they supposed to survive? So whether it's business rates or discounts on uh, ground rent and that sort of thing, I think governments need to really support the catering industry and if it's if there's any chance it's going to change I, i've never actually heard that perspective of the restaurant industry before i know that they had to change the basic the basic setup of i know that there's different types of restaurants and the way that they're set up but the way that we're evolving into just delivery and things like that i think that we are behind the curve of technology like you mentioned and so i think that i, I think like how my restaurant set a very different example because I also have never heard of sub of a subscription service with just a single um, thing of their products um, and taking control of it at that I think from going to like an A to A like you like they have the product and then solely delivering it made a big impact and one of the biggest things in the restaurant industry where we have lose money and there has been a lot of controversy is like where the money comes in from like servers how servers are paid like two three dollars or something like that but they make way more than like chefs and cooks and so to close the gap they needed another source of income because tips are optional and so to to force like that pressure on the guests to tip 20 percent or more to kind of cover the cost of like the kitchen and things like that was getting a little bit out of hand and so i think that all restaurants should kind of seek out different sources of income to kind of have a more sustainable model moving forward because paying their rent check to check, like you mentioned, isn't sustainable for the future because of emergencies like this. And my first thought as the coronavirus is taking place was I couldn't ever imagine like opening or your friend opening up a business right now or only being a couple of years in, which is kind of like a lot to say, but usually restaurants don't see the upside of their investment until at least a couple of years because of all the debt and like paying off all these different things and paying for rent and employees and salaries and 
food inventory and all these different things. And so it's just very interesting to see where we're going to come, where we're going to go from this point. Yeah, you what you mentioned there about, you Lucy touched on sort of tech and uh, the way that, not necessarily, but the disruption of the market is typically what happens in the tech industry, right? And maybe there needs to be a disruption within the food industry where maybe you don't live on check to check, but you're funded up front for a few years by investors. Maybe that's just how it works, how it works going forward. Mm -hmm. That's how most startups work is that you get a million, couple million in investment from people who believe in you and believe in the idea, but you prove your revenue over years rather than having to do it immediately hit the ground running. And possibly that's a way that restaurants can sustain themselves. Right. I don't know. Part of me thinks that the coronavirus, even though it has been detrimental to a lot of businesses and things like that, I think that it's actually in some ways it does have like a silver lining because it kind of puts everything to a halt to regroup and kind of use this time to think about different ways moving forward. And so I think that the industry really could turn onto a new leaf. But this wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have had this time to evolve change because these restaurants would have closed down anyway and so i think having this time to kind of rebuild a better future for the uh, hospitality industry and restaurants in general kind of is is a good thing we're utilizing this time well i think because i think everybody is kind of coming together and understanding that some things do need to change um, whether that's um I think everybody wants to move towards a more sustainable, not only a sustainable model, but also from an agricultural and food perspective as well, because that's also a huge flaw in um, restaurants, you know, the amount of energy that we waste and things that we can do better, the perishability of food and how much we actually throw away. And so I think a lot of people are kind of looking for more green initiatives moving forward. Yeah, and I think that's one of the takeaways that for me from this experience is hopefully with more people cooking at home and experimenting in the kitchen and sort of being forced into that environment that they ultimately make more sensible choices when they're out and it's kind of as an opportunity for restaurants to look at how they use wastage can they can they use more of the more of the products they have if they're if they're selling meat can they use the whole animal and are consumers going to be more comfortable with that i hope so because the the sustainability of production is just not it's not there is it and if people go out and only want to eat a steak every time they go to a restaurant we need to be comfortable with the idea that's not cool and we need to eat more of the animal if you're going to want to eat meat i think that is so incredibly important because right now the food quality and animal agriculture is kind of um sucking the life out of the planet to be completely blunt but i think one thing that we're realizing is as all of these businesses go out of business to I guess that's a little redundant but that we actually have a lot of the power and our money has power and so the thing is that when we put money into local businesses which we have been really advocating for so that they don't go under it really just goes to show that we can make these very specific decisions to kind of empower local local industries local groceries local businesses to kind of sustain themselves during this time and so I think I think the consumer, like us, me and you, needed that kind of reminder to to make sure we know where we're putting our money because it's almost like our vote and what we want to see into the future. And so I think that's yeah, really cool and too. the 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 
the point that we probably need to hammer home is that obviously this is a pri privileged position that we're in to be able to make these choices <clears throat> and mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't in that unfortunately aren't in that position but if there's anything that i can see that's positive out of this is that one thing we have noticed is an increase in community despite it being more remote during this time people are seemingly coming more together and appreciating who they do have and they're appreciating their friends and family a lot more than they were before we're facing with this pandemic so let's say we're going to put this friendship and community side together alongside people's thirst for learning how to cook could there be more community projects that are relate, uh, revolving around food that would be so nice could we uh, see a, a boom in soup kitchens for example that would be an amazing positive contribution out of this poor experience for people to get back involved in the community through food yeah i i think so too i think no i think i think i think you're definitely right with that because i forgot to mention we are definitely coming from a place of privilege like you said i think that i'm in, i'm incredibly grateful to be where i'm at right now because i i was working i was at a point where i was working a whole lot and so now it's nice to actually have dinner with my family and play board games and just you know use this time to go on a walk and see spring bloom and i know it's like sounds really cliche and really you know trivial but it's not things that we usually it's like time slows down for the right reasons you know that i have this opportunity to just kind of enjoy the day because usually i am running around crazy doing a whole bunch of different things and i'm very fortunate that my family is healthy and you know they're not actually getting sick from the virus you know that's actually a big deal because not everybody has ac access to really good resources and it's actually been kind of nice because some of the restaurants in dc are using their empty restaurants to make food for um, people in need and things like that because we have such a huge homeless population in dc and so i think it is really empowering that we're all kind of coming together to help each other I think that social media kind of blew up certain things, you know, like how we're running out of toilet paper in America and all these different things. But I feel like it also shows true colors, you know, like that we're willing to share and accommodate each other. And it doesn't matter that you're in London and I'm in America, but, you know, we're still going through the same thing and we're kind of supporting each other. Yeah, it's around. an amazing leveler and a forced perspective on yourself and to actually take some time to realize who you are, what you want to be doing, how much community do you want to have in your life? And the answer is more often than not is more. And we often just move a bit too fast to appreciate the community that we do have around us. Yeah, I think that's the way that the culture and the society we grew up into, every man for himself, a yeah. sense of independence, you know, that, you know, and you can, I think there's a phrase or something that if you run by yourself, you'll go fast, but if you bring a team, you'll go further or something like that. And so I think that's kind of, it's a pretty powerful message for what we're going through right now. Like we, can, we can't really get through it individually, but if we all stick together, you know, everybody stays inside and wash their hands, you know, I think that we can overcome it, you know, together because we don't really have yeah, much of definitely. a choice, you know? Thank you again so much for being a guest on my show. Not at all. I really enjoyed that chat. We we went pretty deep, but I think we, we covered a lot of ground and ideally there's some, some useful tips that people can take away to have some reflection and understand what the restaurant industry is going through at the moment and what they can what steps they can take themselves to, to try and keep it on its feet. 
Of course, and I believe you also have a podcast called The Noise Pod. You guys can find it anywhere you guys get your podcasts, but I usually have a tradition here where my guests kind of share something inspirational, last closing thought to the listeners. If you have any advice or encouraging tips or something Absolutely. that you'd like to leave I, with. I'm a firm believer that everybody can cook and the the biggest prevention from people from people making that move is that they're nervous and i think you don't, there's no need to be nervous everyone can give cooking a go you really don't need to be a professional to kickstart your exploration i would give some advice and say you know take your favorite food find a recipe try and master that recipe and then you can move on with, with those techniques that you've learned it's how i got started i'm a huge curry fan and when i was sort of 17 18 I found, uh, went in my parents' cupboard, saw loads of spices, decided I was going to make my own curry at that moment. And that, from that moment on, I became obsessed. And I think everybody starts, if you start from something really small yeah. and it will spiral out of control and before you know it, you're cooking for your friends. That's my advice. No, that's actually really, really great advice because that's how I got started with just about everything. I actually started off as a baker first. I wanted, you said you watched a lot of cooking shows, but have you ever seen the show Cake Boss or anything like that on TLC where he'd like (laughs) build these beautiful cakes that look like cars and all these different things? I grew up watching that and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be a baker. And so I just started off by making cookies and cupcakes and I didn't actually start cooking until... You know, I was okay. 19, something like that, which sounds really sad. But, you know, but I had to start from scratch. And I think that's so important to understand. You know, you start off with rice, you start off with spaghetti, you know, things you're normally eating and something so simple. And then you can learn how to enhance it. And you find things in the cupboard and you're like, hmm, maybe chili flakes, maybe this. And then you kind of figure out what you like. Yeah. Don't be afraid to experiment. <laughs> Do you have any social media or anything like that where yes, everybody ev- can find you? Everyone can find me everywhere with the same handle. It's at disco underscore Lou. Disco. Is there a name behind your yeah. <laughs> behind your name? You remember in The Simpsons, Disco Stu? When I, when, I was, uh, when I was younger, I had big hair and I looked like him. So I chose Disco Lou to match. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so everybody, you can find him at Disco Lou um, on Instagram and everywhere else. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. (laughs) Of course. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Precious the Foodie. You can follow the show on Instagram at Precious the Foodie, or you can follow me at Precious Pioneer anywhere on all of your platforms. If you have any comments or ideas for future shows, please don't be afraid to send me those. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Share it with your friends, family. It really helped to support me and the creation of this show. But as always, live life with love and live food with life. Bye guys. See you next time.